Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scriptures, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you would like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 1001. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 1, beginning with verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word today, we are completely reliant upon the Holy Spirit to unstop our ears, to open our eyes, and to allow our hearts to receive your word and your gospel today. So would you be pleased to do a work in us through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Every November as we approach the holiday season, all of the holiday movies begin playing. One of the most popular Christmas movies of all time, perhaps, is It's a Wonderful Life. We're a divided household on that one. I won't tell you who is who in that debate. But in this story, we find out that George Bailey has spent his entire life giving of himself to the people of Bedford Falls. On Christmas Eve, George's uncle, Billy, loses a large sum of money from the savings and loan business that they operate while intending to deposit at the bank. Mr. Potter, who wants to put George out of business and take over this little town, finds the money and instead of returning it, he hides it from Uncle Billy to see how it will play out and to see George fail. 
When the bank examiner discovers the shortage later that night, George realizes that he'll be held responsible and be sent to jail, and his company will collapse, allowing Mr. Potter to own everything and everyone in this little community. Thinking his wife Mary, their four children, and others he loves would be better off without him, he contemplates suicide. But the prayers of his loved ones result in his guardian angel named Clarence Oddbody coming to earth to help him with a promise of earning his wings. He shows him what things would have been like if he had never been born. And the movie ends with a little bell ringing on the tree, signifying that Clarence finally attained his wings in heaven for his work with George. All right, I'll tell you, I love watching It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> it always makes me well up a little bit with tears, even though I know what's coming and I tell myself, don't weep, you can get through this. It's a great story, but if you're building your knowledge and understanding of angels from this movie, I'm probably going to burst your bubble this morning. As Christians, we believe that the word of God is sufficient for everything that we need for our faith and our practice of faith in life. So when it comes to knowing about angels, we should get our information from the scriptures, not from Hollywood or the latest spirituality fad out there in the bookstores. A simple search on book titles about angels today uh, unfortunately, even in Christian bookstores, reveal a lot of misperceptions about angels. One book on angels had this descriptor, get psychic help from your spirit guides today. That sounds like a 1-800 number commercial on late night television, doesn't it? I saw a book about tapping into the power of angels to help them, help them usher in the second coming of Christ. Another one on how your deceased loved ones come back to inhabit animals as angels and guide you through your life. Well, while the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews don't appear to be worshiping angels as the Colossian believers were tempted to do, there does seem to be a misplaced emphasis or a prioritizing of angels, especially as they relate to Jesus Christ, the Son. The author wants to make it abundantly clear that while angels are real and they are doing the will of God, serving the God of heaven, they are inferior to Jesus, the Son of God. And this, I believe, is the message for us today. We need not look to angels or spirit guides or anything else for divine revelation or help. We have something much, much greater. We have the very Son of God and his words of love to us in the scriptures. There is nothing greater than that, and there is nothing more that we need. So let's by, begin today by answering the question, well, what, what and who are angels? 
What, are, what do they do according to the scriptures? Well, the Bible teaches, as we have just read, that angels are ministers or servants of the living God. We're told in Psalm 8 that humanity for a time exists just below the order of angels. And yet here in Hebrews, we're told that angels exist to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Well, that's us. That's God's people. Angels are on mission to serve God in serving us. And eventually in the new heaven and new earth, redeemed humanity, the people of God, will be exalted over the angels and will rule over them. Angels are spirit beings who sometimes manifest themselves in bodies. There are many examples of that in the scripture. They're not eternal beings as God is and as the Trinity is, but they were created by God. We're not sure exactly when, perhaps at or before the creation of the world. There are different categories and classes of angels in the Bible. The New Testament mentions rulers and authorities in heavenly places, likely referring to the angels serving God, but also to Satan and the fallen angels that went with him in that cosmic rebellion. The angels Gabriel and Michael are named for us, and they're referred to as princes of the angels. Michael also bears the title of archangel. So there's clearly categories and a hierarchy in the angelic host. In the book of Revelation chapter 8, there are seven angels who stand before the throne of God, serving God and worshiping. There are angels referred to as cherubim and seraphim, each with distinct roles in the service of God. Also in Revelation, as in Ezekiel, we see these unusual-looking living creatures, four living creatures around God's throne, described as being like the face of a, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle in flight, each with six wings and full of eyes all around and within that's a strange description for us, isn't it? To, to comprehend and to understand. And we also know that when angels appear to men and women in the Bible, it's a bit scary. Often the first thing out of the angel's mouth is, don't be afraid. To assure them that they're there as God's messengers. These descriptions certainly don't match most of the artist's renditions of angels, do they? These paintings that we are, are familiar with. We also know that angels are devoted to the unceasing worship of their creator, the God of heaven. And they experience emotions. They experience great joy, the Bible says, even when just one person on earth comes to a saving faith in Christ. Psalms 34 and 91 teach us that they watch over us. They watch over God's people and they protect us. In their role as messengers, they bring God's word to his people. Think of Gabriel coming to Mary and announcing that she would conceive Jesus and give birth to him. 
There's also a reference in the Old Testament or several references to the angel of the Lord. You can think of Jacob's wrestling match or the story of Gideon when he was hiding from the Midianites or Moses at the burning bush. All of these are appearances of the angel of the Lord. This is generally, generally believed to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. So in this case, the term angel has that broader meaning of messenger, not the title of these angelic hosts that are created beings. We know, of course, that Jesus is the living word, and he is God's direct message, even as we've seen in Hebrews to this point. He is the God's direct message to humanity in the gospel. And he is, in fact, far superior. He is better than the angels. While they do serve as protectors of God's people, we don't have an explicit reference telling us that each one of us has a guardian angel. Angels don't marry one another. There's no evidence that they have families. And you'll probably know that on occasion in the scripture when someone sees an angel and bows like the apostle John did in Revelation to worship that angel, they refuse the worship. They know that they're not to be worshiped and in turn, they are worshiping their creator and bow before God. These are some of the things that we know about angels. Beyond what the Bible teaches, it is spiritually dangerous and unwise to speculate. For the Bible also teaches that Satan often comes to us as an angel of light. Outside of the truth found in Scripture, how can we be sure if our speculation about angels is true or a falsehood from the father of lies disguised as an angel of light? And so we must not go there. We must rely upon God's word alone as it's revealed to us and not go beyond it. The real emphasis in the passage before us is not so much on angels in and of themselves, but rather the emphasis of the writer is the superiority of Jesus to the angels. And to prove his point, the author quotes seven scripture passages as his proof texts for his argument. It's a great example of expositional preaching of taking the word of God to to declare truth and to teach. Looking back to verse three in the second sentence of verse three, where it begins there, after making purification for sins, he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For a time, at his incarnation, In his humanity, and that's the distinction. It's, again, hard to comprehend this one who is fully God and fully human. But in his humanity, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, as Psalm 8 tells us, and we'll unpack that in a future message here in Hebrews. But after Jesus, the man, finished his work of redemption on earth, he ascended in glory to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, to rule and to reign as the exalted king of the universe and the rightful heir to the throne of heaven, even as we have seen in weeks past. 
Next, the writer gives his first two scripture proof texts telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. First, he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son today, I have begotten you. And then he goes to 2 Samuel. He uses different portions of the scripture to emphasize these truths where he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When the, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, as we talked about just over the Advent season in Luke's gospel chapter one, he gave this message to Mary and listened to the similar language that we find here. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Bible does refer to angels as sons of God on occasion. That is a a term that is used to identify them. But no angel or no human can claim to be the only Son of the Most High God. That title is unique to Jesus And Gabriel understood the significance of that even in his declaration to Mary. It was at Jesus' ascension to glory that in his humanity, he became far superior to angels, completely fulfilling his inherited title of son. This sonship is his and his alone. Our sonship status as those who have been adopted into Christ, is by virtue of our being in him. We are only sons and daughters of God because Christ has engrafted us into himself and we are united with him as the one true son of God. This is what it means to share, part of what it means to share in Christ's inheritance as believers, what an amazing blessing and privilege is ours to be part of that inheritance. Not only is Jesus better than the angels in his exalted state as the Son of God, but also we see here that the angels worship him. For his proof text, the writer quotes from the end of the Song of Moses, found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He writes this, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. As the firstborn in status, Jesus went before us in his plan of redemption. He was brought into the world and was the first and only one who lived a perfect life on our behalf. He was the only one who could make atonement for our sins. He was the only one who could conquer sin and death for us. He opened the way that we can follow in his righteousness and in his redemption. Only the perfect son of God could accomplish this for us. And this reality makes him the object of worship for the angels. As we already mentioned, angels refuse the worship of men, but Jesus gladly receives the worship of angels. We sang about this at the start of our service, didn't we? 
I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. It is this powerful name, Son of God, that causes the angels to lay out before their sovereign and worship at the throne of heaven. And while in a sense, we join in that worship now, even as we gather here, one day with that sacred throng, we too at his feet will fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all with the heavenly hosts. Oh, what a glorious gathering that will be when we worship the Son of God with the angels of heaven in the perfect beauty of holiness. Jesus is better than the angels who worship him. And thirdly, we see that he's better than the angels because Jesus is the eternal sovereign and creator. Take a look at verse 8. While angels are ministers and messengers, speaking of the Son, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. He says, Your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then quoting from Psalm 102, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They, the creation, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus' royalty is brought out in emphasizing his throne, his scepter, his kingdom. No angel can claim to be the eternal king who reigns in heaven. One tried and he was cast out of heaven. Certainly, the angels must love righteousness and hate wickedness, as the passage says, but not to the degree that Jesus does. It was Jesus' love of righteousness and hatred of wickedness that led him to the obedience of the cross. For only there in his agonizing death, taking on the penalty for our sin, could his love for righteousness and his hatred of wickedness be satisfied. It demanded the cross. Only on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, could steadfast love and faithfulness meet and righteousness and peace kiss each other. Jesus, the suffering servant, experienced the greatest sorrow ever known that we might inherit salvation. This one who was anointed with the oil of gladness beyond any other being. Why did he endure such anguish? Later in chapter 12 of Hebrews, we read that Jesus, who for the joy, the gladness, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus attained the prize, reclaiming sinners like you and like me. When Satan tempts you to despair, when Satan attacks you and digs his claws into your heart with the guilt of your sin and your shortcomings and your inability, remember that Jesus found his joy in dying for you so that you might be his bride forever. That's who you are. How can we ever despair with good news such as this? It's Jesus, not the angels, that created the universe. And he will bring it to a finish at the end of days. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The created order will have an end, but Jesus remains. He is forever. The creation will all wear out like an old coat. It'll be rolled up and discarded. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the eternal sovereign, and the eternal creator. In verse 13, the author quotes from yet another psalm, 110. And it's the same passage that he alluded to at the beginning of the passage today in verse three. He bookends this section with this idea. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Of course, the answer to the rhetorical question is none. No angel has ever had such a status. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul who writes to the Corinthian church unpacking this truth for them in chapter 15, beginning in verse 24. Paul says, then, speaking of the time after Christ returns, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things under him, that God may be all in all. Jesus' intercessory work at the right hand of the Father will be completed at the end of days. The kingdom will come in its fullness and complete victory over evil and the enemies of God will be attained. And then Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus' work will be finished. No more death, no more sin, no more sadness, no more depression, no more evil, no more war, no more strife, no more brokenness. Because God will fill all in all. 
I can't begin to understand what that means entirely, but it's going to be good. God will fill every space of our hearts, every aspect of our minds, every part of his created world because Jesus will have accomplished all of the work to attain that victory. This is glorious news, folks. The final point of the outline is that angels serve him. Quoting from Psalm 104, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And then he concludes the chapter with another rhetorical question. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The writer of Hebrews is telling us angels exist to serve God by helping us. We don't exist to worship or serve angels. And we shouldn't really spend a lot of energy chasing after them. They're invisible to us anyway, and if God wanted us to focus our attention upon angels, he would have enabled us to and instructed us to do so. These dear saints addressed in the book of Hebrews were in danger, remember, of going backwards in their faith, in their understanding of who Jesus was. They were in danger of rejecting the salvation purchased for them by his saving work on the cross and going back to seeking God through other means, such as angels, and the works of their religion. The writer of this letter was giving them a strong course correction, encouraging them to stay on track. Sure, it's hard following Jesus when the world is against you. It would be be easier in one sense to go along with the popular spirituality of the age. After all, maybe, maybe he is just one among many messengers from God like angels. Maybe, maybe all paths do lead to heaven from different sides of the mountain. Well, this is the question we have to grapple with. Who is Jesus to you today? Is he enough for the tragedies and hardships of your life? Or do you believe you need another path? You need something else. Can he handle your sin and your guilt or is there something else you need to do to atone for it? Whatever it is that you think you need, the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is better than everything. I believe the message to us from God's word today is that. And we must only look to the one who is the Son of God, the one whom angels worship, the eternal sovereign and creator, the one whom angels serve. Don't look to the angels for help in your time of need. They'll be there, but they'll be there at the direction of the lover of your soul. They'll be there at the behest of the God of heaven 
and his son, our intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, join those angels in worship, crowning the Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to see Christ, to see Jesus for who he is in his splendor and glory as the sovereign, eternal king and creator, as the one worshiped and adored by the heavenly host, as the one who sends his messengers to sustain and serve and to help us in this Christian journey and as the one who is supreme and better than everything else. Help us to submit ourselves to you in obedience and to worship you in the beauty of holiness, we ask in Christ's name.